I don't know if this sermon's going to work, but I'm going to try. I'm, I'm going to be asking a lot of you guys this morning as, as listeners, as, as participants, um, I want you to know that this message that I'm, that I'm attempting to give is, is not meant uh, to necessarily convict anybody. It's meant more uh, to present an idea, fill our imaginations with a, a possibility for life that um, I, don't, I, I would gather to say most of us, certainly myself, ha- haven't heard much about this uh, in a church or really anywhere else. Um, and, and this sermon is, is about religion. Uh, and you're like, well, duh, we're in church, Jamin. Yeah. Um, it's about religion. Um, and it's about the importance of religion. It's also about the limits of religion. And then also about a way that we can experience freedom and religion at the same time. It's kind of what this sermon is about, but there's going, to be, there's, there's going to be some limits to the language that I'm trying to use to talk about these things. So words like maturity or wisdom or greater intelligence, those things aren't really going to work well. Um, so what I'm going to ask of you, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm asking a lot, and it's for patience that as we go through this journey in this text and through these ideas that you try for as long as you can to suspend your desire that we all have to put it into a specific category, to to take what I'm saying and say, oh, I know what that is, it goes in this box, and try to just follow along as as best you can without doing that. All right, can we try that? All right, let's give it a shot, let's pray. Um, Because for a number of reasons, physical and otherwise, I need that prayer more than you guys do, all right? So Lord, um, I pray that you would, you would be with me this morning, that you would speak in and through me. I pray for um, everyone trying to listen and to understand your word, to understand the, also the ideas that I am trying to talk about that I see in your word. I pray you would give us wisdom, understanding, and an ability to suspend our conclusions. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, so the sermon's about, about religion and um, those three things that I said earlier about the importance of religion, the limits of religion, and then freedom in religion. Your religion, not just Saul's. Uh, the, the life that we all live is preoccupied with, with a lot of things. Uh, concerning our identity. We have a struggle to achieve great things. We have a struggle and a desire to conquer things. We have a desire to find significance and worth and security and, and safety. And we spend a lot of time doing those things, trying to get those things or achieve those things. And... We spend a lot of times just reacting, reacting to the world around us. And right now, again, I want to remind you, I'm not, I'm not saying anything is wrong with any of the things I'm talking about or that I'm trying to convict you of something right now. I'm just kind of trying to set some context because we all, this is how life works for human beings. So we, 
We are born into a world of all kinds of fears and anxieties and dangers. And so we respond and react to those things in order to find some safety and sense of security. And so we, we react and we look for ways to establish ourselves as we get older. So when things get harder, things get rockier, or, or we get um, criticized, we remind ourselves or we remind the person criticizing us, no, I'm, I'm a good mother, or I'm a hard worker, or I'm really frugal with my finances, or I'm really strong, or I'm really witty. Uh, we do these things to sort of protect the identity that we're forming. Um, or we, we do this kind of um, self-talk to make it through the days, the, the world. I, and I call it, I dubbed it sort of uh, ego, trying to find an equilibrium for our egos. And I don't mean ego in a negative way. I mean an ego in our, just our sense of being and our sense of self. So um, we might talk to ourselves in this way sometimes. We might say, well, um, I, yes, I did this bad thing, but I'm not a bad person because I did this other good thing. Or, um, yes, Jamin, you did not live up to, up to your own expectations, but I'll just be even harder on myself. I'll just be even harder on myself until I can meet those expectations. Um, or maybe it's you talk to yourself like this, like, I don't buy any of all this other stuff that all these other people do because I'm too smart. And so that's my path and that's my way. And that's how I sort of protect and define my own ego, my own sense of identity. So if you can imagine um, this as maybe a house or, or a container, um, we set up these certain ideas, these, these certain things about who we are that define our identity to protect us from things that are scary, from uh, an uncertain world. Um, and we strive to find some certainty and security. Uh, we do that by volunteering sometimes, uh, by memorizing Bible verses, uh, by trying to get raises, by trying to find a, the most fulfilling job. Um, and we look to find uh, some identity in these things. And that's important work. It's, it's actually really important work for us to do, that, do those tasks. Um, if we don't, if we're not able to, if we haven't had the type of childhood where we have been encouraged or we have had the opportunities that some other people have, we might spend the rest of our life trying to make up for those tasks, trying to achieve those things or conquer those things that never got to happen for us because we never got to play Little League Baseball and we never got help with our homework and we were raised in a broken home and our parents were always struggling to pay the bills or they never said kind words to us. And so we actually, if we don't, if we aren't able to construct this house of identity, uh, we might spend the rest of our lives trying to, trying to look for those things. Um, and that means a lot of us might need affirmation every day of our lives, that you're not a worthless sinner, that you're made in the image of God, 
and that you have a lot of value. And if you need to hear that every day for the rest of your life, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you at all. You just didn't get those things when some other people did. You're probably thinking about now like, man, you're talking about a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily tie directly uh, to religion. But here's, here's the way that it does. So this idea, this idea of, of constructing this safe place for your identity, this sort of ego equilibrium, I think it's, it's tied very directly to how we often experience what we call religion. Because I think religion is a part of that structure. It's a part of how in an uncertain world with unlimited parameters uh, that we find some sense of security and safety even sometimes where there isn't any security or safety to be had. We need those parameters. We need boundaries as human beings, as we grow and develop, to know where the line is. If you don't have boundaries for kids, they freak out and they lose their minds. And we're the same way as we get older. We still need these different boundaries. We need securities or we'll never be able to rest mentally and emotionally well enough to engage in the present, in the here and now. So I'm saying all this because I wanna say that this is good work. It's important work that every human engages in, but it's not the only work that there is. It's not the only task that we have as human beings. And so if you are preoccupied with this work around identity, um, you are doing what you're supposed to do. But I also wanna say that there's more to it. And that's where I think that we find Saul here in this passage of scripture. There's, there's more to life this side of heaven. I think uh, there's more than just getting saved or going to church every Sunday or saying some of the right things and helping to protect our identity um, and, be a, and, and not have to worry about the fears as much or the anxieties of this life. I think there's more to it than that. And I think religion is the foundation of, of that next step, of that next part of the journey. But I don't think religion is by itself that next step. So, Let's look here at this guy named Saul in this passage and see what's going on with him and uh, why, why this has anything to do with all these ideas I'm talking about, about identity and, and religion. So in verse one, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. And so this guy, Saul, he was a very religious man. He, um, he grew up, in fact, we're just gonna put it on the screen. Um, he grew up in Judaism and he was an incredible religious person. So uh, in Galatians chapter one, he is writing to the, the Galatians and he says, uh, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people 
so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. So then he starts going into after he met Jesus. But you could see there, he's saying how extremely zealous he was for the traditions of his fathers. What he's talking about in the scriptures here is a good portion of our Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament Bible, the Torah, and the teachings surrounding that. And then again in Acts 22, verse 3, he says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, did I say that right? No. But brought up in this city, I studied under uh, Gamaliel. Um, Full disclosure, I have a really bad toothache right now, and that's affecting my concentration level right now. Gamaliel, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So Saul was very educated. He studied under um, the, the top guys, and he grew up with a very sophisticated understanding of religion, and he excelled at it. He achieved. He conquered in these things, and he found his identity and his worth. He found that as he excelled in these things that he felt really good about who he was as a human being, and he felt like he was doing the will and the work of God, and so he advanced very um, rapidly and with great passion into these things, into these certainties about life. That's what religion so often offers us in an uncertain world, these certainties. And so Saul led this life of certainty that he had found the path for him to make him feel like that he was able to please God through the ways that he was obedient to the traditions and the religions that he had subscribed to, that his father had subscribed to, and his father's father. And This was extremely important in the world that Saul lived in because he lived in a world of very diverse views and opinions. He was subscribing to and believing in and giving his whole life to a tradition and an idea that said that there was only one God in a world full of gods everywhere he turned, full of spiritual ideas and people and cults and all types of things. And so Saul had great confidence in who he was and what he was, and it gave him a sense of stability and safety in an uncertain world. But this didn't really work out for him as we see in the long run. It worked really well for a long time for him, well into his young adulthood. And I wanna say this, if you don't consider yourself a religious person, um, you probably just haven't looked hard enough yet. I would say that there are lots of people who aren't here this Sunday morning who are maybe doing yoga or playing video games or at a nice brunch somewhere are also religious people. That this world offers us lots of fear and uncertainty. Fear of death, fear of condemnation, fear of meaninglessness. And we all share those fears. And we all seek to come up with a system or something to be a part of that can relieve those fears and anxieties for us and to help us make sense of the world. That's religion or a political party. Or maybe you find your identity 
probably not because you're here right now, but maybe you find your identity in the fact that you aren't a part of one of these things. And so you have all these rules about that. You know, the idea of anarchy, of, of just kind of like no government, no organization. Well, anarchists have meetings and conferences with organization to them. There's no getting around it. You can try to avoid these things, but as human beings, we need them. We need them. We need a, a lever and a place to stand to move something in this world. I think that's Archimedes said that. I think I pronounced his name right, and y'all can't see his name right now, so maybe you can't check me on it. So, I think that religion is really good and important, and it's an important foundation that we all need, and I also think there are limits to it. And I want you to hear what I'm not talking about right now, just so we're real clear. I'm not talking about conservative versus liberal. I'm not saying that religious people are conservative and non-religious people are liberal. Check out this quote by Tim Keller. He talks about this in a, a, a really clear way. So this is what he says. He says, if we get our identity, our sense of worth from our political position, then it's not really about politics. It is about us. Through our cause, we are getting a self, our worth. That means we must despise and demonize the opposition. If we get our identity from our ethnicity or socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you will be extremely indignant toward people you think are bigots. If you are a very moral person, you will feel superior to people you think are licentious, and so on. <laughs> so, when we, when we look at this, it's like, well, so what do, how are we supposed to do this thing then? How are we supposed to understand our identity and who we are without falling into what Tim Keller just talked about? And the answer is that I believe this uh, 36-year-old dude in front of you trying to drop wisdom, right? I believe that we just do that and that we can't avoid it because it's part of the formation of our egos and ourselves as a person, a human being in this world. But, but that doesn't mean we have to stay there. I think most of us do stay there, but I don't think we have to stay there. I think we attach ourselves to these ideas and we might call them God or we might call it an enlightened view, but it's really our safety and our security that we're attached to. And when you meet God, those things don't tend to work anymore. When you really meet God, those things that you defined your identity on, they don't tend to work that well anymore. And that's what happened to this guy named Saul. So eventually, just like we see with Saul, you're gonna come to the end of this worldview, this religious perspective that you have where it can no longer handle life's problems that are being thrown at you, where there's always been answers that worked really well until that person in your family died 
or until you couldn't kick a particular addiction in your life or your marriage just kept getting harder and harder even though you kept memorizing all the verses in the Bible about being a good husband and you went to church with your spouse every week and none of it worked anymore. Your system just couldn't handle reality because your system, our systems are less than reality. And life is tragic. So Saul, he's convinced. He's on his way to Damascus. He's riding his donkey as fast as he can to get there to lock up some people who he is sure, he's 100% sure they've got it wrong. And he has believed all the right things about God and who God was. And if he was here, if Saul, not Paul, if Saul was here today, he would outclass any of us 10 times over in how much Bible he knew and could quote and say to us. And I want, I want to um, talk for just a moment about something Saul might've been doing around this time. There was a, there was a prayer that was very popular among uh, rabbis and um, Jewish spiritual um, leaders. And it came from the first chapter of Ezekiel. And for all you Bible scholars, you already know this, but the first chapter of Ezekiel is this amazing vision of a chariot uh, with wheels uh, spinning and eyes on these wheels and these angels with hands and wings and heads all over the place. It's a very complex vision. But there was a practice at that time around Saul's time that he probably would have been engaged in at different times. And the practice was to imagine this vision, to try to, in your mind's eye, pray through this vision. The end of the vision leads you face to face with a representation of God himself. I've got that part of the scripture on the screen here from Ezekiel chapter one, um, verse 26 through 28. It says, so this, the, the vision is set. You've got, the, you've got the, um, the chariot and the angels. And then you look up and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. You hear how many times he's already used the word likeness? That's on purpose. And upward from what he had, the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around him. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow, talking about a rainbow, that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So the goal here would be to be able to visualize this as best you can in a meditative prayer for a Jewish person in the first century like Saul. And then as you read this part, the hope, the prayer would be that maybe you could get a glimpse of the likeness of God. So there is a suggestion among many scholars, it didn't come from me, that perhaps 
Paul might have been engaged in this prayer. That maybe he was hoping in his religious fervor of following God's commands, of going after those blasphemers who followed this magic trickster who died on a cross, that maybe he had been faithful enough that maybe he could get a glimpse of the likeness of God. And he does. And God looks like Jesus of Nazareth. This country bumpkin, poor man's magician who was sacrificed on a cross by some Romans. What must this have done to Paul to have this idea of Saul, excuse me, to have this idea of what God would look like and known his whole life what God was supposed to look like and how he was supposed to act. And then he sees the face of Jesus of Nazareth. My God, what a horrific, scary, holy, unraveling, mind-blowing encounter that must have been for Saul. And then that's not the worst of it for him. What happens next? What does Jesus, who is God, say to this very religious, holy man of God who says, above, there is no one who could top me in obedience to the Torah, to God's law. He says, why are you persecuting me? I don't even think God had to do anything supernatural to blind Paul after that. Excuse me, Saul. I think he went blind from the sheer shock of that situation. How could God be this? And then on top of it to say, you are persecuting me. Saul is there undone, laying on the ground. I can't help but feel bad for him in this moment. I can't help but relate to him, actually, in this moment. This is an idea, this is a moment that will forever change Saul's life. If you read any of his letters in the New Testament, Again, after today, read them thinking about this moment where Jesus appeared and said, when you are going after the people who trust in me, even though it doesn't fit into your idea of who I am, who God is, you are the enemy of God. You have been persecuting me. I am saying that the people who call on my name, who do my works, are an extension, a mystical, holy extension of me. No, I mean, no, that can't be. Because we have the circumcision. We Jews, we have circumcision. We have dietary laws. We have means of figuring out who is in and who is out. And it came from you, God. So how can you tell me those people are in? But what could Paul do? He's Paul now. 
He just had, he just had his initiation. He is now Paul. What could he do? Because he, in all his certainty, was now certain that he had been wrong about many things. Not everything, not even most things, but some very, very important things he had been wrong about. And so Paul came to the limits of his religion. It had served him well. It had turned him into a knowledgeable, intelligent, and I'm sure even had compassion in him. But he had hit rock bottom to where he was going to the highest authority of his religion, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and saying like, okay, man, I'm ready to go. Like, just write me a letter. I'll go get them. I'll go round them up. And they're like, okay, we weren't even like that serious about it yet. But sure, take the letter. Go do the dirty work for us. That sounds good. He had hit rock bottom. He couldn't achieve enough. He couldn't conquer enough. The structure he had built for himself was beautiful. It was perfect, but the inside was a black hole sucking in everything around him. And so he came to the limits of his religion. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, when we come to the limits of our religion, I think uh, we can hear this from other people. And you say, well, Jamin, but it was, it was God who said that. It was Jesus who said that to Saul. Yeah, he did. And he was talking about people that Saul had persecuted. And so I think my experience and Saul's experience and others that I've known, it, it shed some light on this, that there's people telling us that all the time and asking us that all the time. Could be your spouse, could be a family member, could be coworkers, could be someone of another race or ethnicity or social class as you. They're saying this to you. Why are you persecuting me? And I think the point, the, the magic lineup of being at your personal worst and being able to hear that at the same time, I think it can usher you into a new space in life. And, and I don't think that it usually happens to young people. That's why I said, I don't know if this sermon is even gonna work. A lot of us are pretty young in here. And it's not something that you can make happen. Saul certainly didn't make, make that happen. But I do think it, it, it's something that could be encouraging to us if we know that there is something else, that for the rest of your life, you don't have to spend it drawing lines and boundaries just trying to defend the identity you had to form for yourself when you were a middle schooler and somebody said, you're really smart. And so now you spent the rest of your life trying to form an identity around proving that. Or somebody said something negative about you. They said, you're a really bad kid. You're really needy or you were really this or that. And so you've spent your identity trying to create something to prove that to be wrong, that there's more than that. That in your old age, you don't have to spend that time just flicking those things away that there's more to do than defend the container of your identity. That's what Saul found out here. Um, the, uh, 
the historian slash theologian, he talks about this moment. Um, uh, I'm gonna go to that in one second because there's something I, I wanna say that I don't wanna forget to say. Um, there's been a couple of people uh, recently who said that uh, they said they, their life has been changed at Christ City, but part of the reason why they can't stay here is because we're soft on sin. And here's personally what I, Jamin Carter, want to say about that. That voice of why are you persecuting me, if you learn to listen to that voice, you will stop sinning more and more. If you can let other people empathize with you, if you can have empathy for yourself and empathy with others, you will stop sinning more and more and your relationship with God will be less oriented around how much you sinned or didn't sin. So that's what I wanna say about that. Here's Thomas Cahill, his, his um, picture, this beautiful picture of how this event changed Paul's life and brought him into this second half, this second page of life. He says this, but the cosmic Christ whose glory knocked Paul from his horse on the road to Damascus, who sums up himself, sums up in himself the whole of the created universe, eventually leads Paul to thoughts that no one has ever had before, thoughts about the equality of all human beings before God. In this ancient world of masters and slaves, conquerors and conquered, a world that articulates at every turn precisely and publicly who's on top and who's on bottom, Paul writes the unthinkable to his Galatians, who may just have been goofy enough to receive it. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. something as flimsy as belief and faith, something that you can't see and Jesus and Paul changed the world through that idea. You can't force yourself to get there, but you can be ready when you're ready, when you're ready to hear that voice, when you're ready to do something about it, when you've hit the bottom of what your constructed identity, your religion, your safety, all those things can get you, then there is, there's more. There's a lot more. You don't just have to go back, back to it, start over, and try to just sin less again. Not saying... Sinning less isn't important. I'm just saying there's a lot more than that. So what Paul gained is the ability to live in freedom with his religion. He didn't throw away his religion, but he found a freedom in it, and he taught it to people who had no idea what he was talking about most of the time. And we still don't. We still miss it. 
We read Paul and we say, oh, Paul's giving us new laws. And he's like, no, he's not. He's trying to just give you enough past that idea that you could find a little bit of freedom. I met Jesus. I know what he's about. We'll we'll end with just looking at one of these examples uh, here in 1 Corinthians 8. He's talking about sacrificing food to idols. And it it so doesn't matter to us, right? There's just no, there's no context for us for that. But at his time, that was the hot topic. That was like uh, legalizing gay marriage 10 years ago for them, right? That was the hot topic. So he says this, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's trying to help them out. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Who do you think Paul learned that from? Himself, right? His own debacle in that situation. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Oh, that's what's important to Paul. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. Say, what? Can you believe this dude? Paul said that. He would have had a separate culinary ware in his house before he met Jesus to make sure certain foods didn't touch each other. He said, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Here's What I want to say as we close, that at Christ City Church, we want to be a church where you can be completely in your need and your phase of religion, where you need all the barriers. If you can stay in a place where it says you can have your barriers, but everybody doesn't have to have the same barriers all the time about all issues for us to be together. That's the gospel. That's who Paul met on the road to Damascus. You can have the other stuff you want, but just don't say it's the gospel because that's what the gospel is. What we just encountered there is what that is. And you're welcome to it. No matter where you are in it, you're welcome to it and you're welcome to it here with us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work in and through the word this morning, that you would cover over any of um, any missteps that I took, or I pray also for conversations afterwards um, about these things, uh, for courage, because it takes courage to talk about these type of things just in person. Um, I pray that you would bring a greater unity to your church here in Memphis and to the church at large. Thank you, God, for showing yourself to Paul and to us. In Jesus' name, amen.